0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
1: If you're a big tech company like Google, Facebook, TikTok, the rules are about to change. The European Union's Digital Services Act is here and it's looking to clean up the internet. Artificial intelligence could hold the key to feeding the planet's growing population, according to a couple of brilliant Queensland scientists. Plus, some surprising news from Netflix. And what you should and shouldn't do while driving an autonomous vehicle. The research is in. All this and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston filling in for Mark Fennell and this week I am joined by Josh Taylor, reporter with Guardian Australia. Thanks for joining us, Josh.
0: Thanks for having me back.
1: And we also have Natasha Gilazow, editor and product lead at Missing Perspectives. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, the EU's new rules for tech giants are here. Josh, can you take us through it? What exactly is the Digital Services Act?
0: Yeah, so it's a... a fairly broad all-encompassing act that that covers a whole range of, of online platforms and services that basically will dictate to them what they can and can't do and it, it's sort of tying up a lot of loose ends of things that people have been finding annoying about digital platforms for quite a while and, and things they worried about so a lot of it is around illegal content stuff that they have to you know will now have to Remove quickly or flag quickly, and, and deal with a lot quicker than they have been in the past. Uh, you know, if there's dodgy products being sold online, they have to take them down. Uh, and and so we're we're already starting to see some of this come through with Facebook and Instagram, for example. Because now, um, you know, one of the one of the bugbears for a lot of people is that they've never had sort of a, a chronological timeline on uh, Facebook or Instagram. You can only view the algorithm that you're you're being served on these places, but. Uh, for European users, at least, uh, you'll now get a, a chronological timeline, which which will probably be great news for a lot of people there. Uh, the other thing is that they're going to ban uh, serving of ads to kids. So there's already relatively strong restrictions around advertising for kids in most parts of the world. They usually don't serve ads or specific types of ads to people under the age of 13, but this will basically bring it up to unless you're 18, you can't see ads essentially, I think.
1: So what will this mean for tech companies, Tash? Is this a big change in the way that they will need to operate?
2: Yeah, it is a big change. A lot of these companies already have content moderation systems in place and by companies, you know, we're talking about Meta, we're talking about X, formerly Twitter, YouTube, um, a lot of the social media players, but also e-commerce companies as well, which is kind of interesting, which have been captured under the Digital Services Act. Um, So yeah, some of them already have their own content moderation systems in place because this isn't a new debate, but it will mean that if they have more than 45 million users, which is all the ones I mentioned before, um, they would now be subject to much higher financial penalties if they breach the Act.
1: So what kind of penalties are we talking about? What's going to happen if they don't follow the rules?
2: I think at the higher end of the spectrum, it's 6% of their annual revenue um, as a potential fine that could be enacted by the EU. So it's pretty significant. Yeah, that's Potentially a pretty big amount, Josh, right?
0: Yeah, it, it could be billions for a lot of them and, and you know, Although you might look at that and be like, "Well, that's just going to be used to to not actually levy them; they're not going to actually find them." But if you look at in the history of, you know, the EU going after tech companies, they are not afraid to to wield these these sticks against the companies and levy big fines against them. So I reckon it, you know it won't be long before we see some of these fines being issued.
2: Another potential consequence is that if there's like repeated failures or repeated breach, their company might not be able to operate in the EU, which both is a pretty big punishment for the company, but also obviously, you know, all the businesses that are built off the back of these platforms. So I imagine it's like a, yeah, if they had to withdraw from the market, there'd be a lot of consequences. So hopefully it wouldn't get to that, but that's also a possibility under the Digital Services Act.
1: And have the tech companies in question indicated that they're going to comply with these rules? Are there any that have come out and said that they won't be? You know, there there are some, uh, let me just say, uh, uh, rebellious platforms that are out there, I think it's safe to say, Josh?
0: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, the obvious one is X. Uh, I think we'll have to wait and see whether X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it, um, will actually end up complying with a lot of these things. Um, they they have kind of said with, when a lot of these cases have come up that they'll abide by the, the laws in, in the countries in which they operate. But in practice, they've, they've kind of turned up their nose a little bit to particularly Western nations. Uh, Sort of enforcing their laws, so we'll have to wait and see on that. I think the the interesting thing is Meta. So we've already seen that Meta is trying to change some of their products with Facebook and Instagram. We noticed when they launched their their Twitter like products, threads, they didn't actually launch it in Europe because of uh, the the Digital Services Act. So uh, I think we'll probably see at least in, on the initial stage, maybe some 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 grumpiness around it. But uh, you know, it's it's a constant thing in the EU that what they say goes and like if they, if they withdraw services, they would draw the services.
2: I think that we should put that like grumpiness in context, right? So it's like, we're talking about these digital platforms that operate online and the types of, you know, content that people are worried about under the digital services act is like content that promotes genocide or anorexia. And it's like, if you were to compare a physical store, like if you had physical stores where one in 10 customers came out, radicalized onto the far right, we would shut down that retail store, like it wouldn't be able to operate. So, or if we had kind of like a dress shop where one in 10 women came out with like an eating disorder with the highest level fatality, like we would look into that. So to sort of be like, oh, these platforms are grumpy, can kind of obfuscate the potential harms to actual real people in the EU that are happening. It's like, we don't really care if they're a little bit grumpy. Um, What we care about is like actual people and how they use it. I think the more interesting question is like the implementation from the tech side of how to actually do this because, like, we know that that's not easy. But, yeah, I probably care less about whether individuals or these companies feel grumpy about it than the actual harms that are hoping to be kind of um, minimised.
0: I think the other thing is that... um... When they do this sort of stuff, when they when they, when they push up against the wall, they will ultimately end up doing it in a lot of places. But the interesting thing to watch will be whether it'll be if once they roll it out in Europe, if it'll go everywhere else in the world. Because often you find increasingly, it used to be the case that. Uh, what whatever happened in the EU became the default in other places as well because it was just easier for the platform to do that. But we're seeing starting like the, it, there's some fragmentation going on. So uh, you know, obviously talking about um, Facebook and Instagram, that that chronological feed's not going to go anywhere else in the world yet. Um, you know, Apple's started to open up its app store to uh, you know uh, third-party payments and things like that, which is only in order to comply with laws in which they're operating in, uh, but we haven't seen that extended to Australia and things like that. So it will push the focus back on regulators to say, if, if what Europe's doing is great, then we need to start looking at doing that ourselves as well. And I think that's this is sort of the first step of that.
1: Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And there's been an interesting finding out of the University of Queensland that could change the way we feed the world. Big claim. Natasha, what did the Queensland scientists find?
2: Yeah, this is, this is a really cute story and, um, you know, a really nice kind of finding out of the um, University of Queensland, UQ. I, I mean, I think any discovery scientifically can't really change the world, but I think that the headline is at least trying to kind of push back on some of the fear mongering that we've seen around artificial intelligence. It's cute. So basically, these geneticists found um, a way of using AI to identify, like looking at data sets, which kind of best parents for plants to breed them with to make the plants more robust and strong. So it's cool. It's kind of like using AI for pattern recognition and making better choices around what, you know, crops to breed with what crops.
1: Now, this is something that has existed before, you know, genetic modification of crops isn't exactly a new thing, but it used to be a very time intensive manual process. So how will this new process work in the real world,
0: Josh, outside the lab? It's very sort of similar I guess it's you just have many more data points I mean the fundamentally what AI is doing is basically being able to hoover up all this information from from farmers and everywhere else and being able to process it and then come out with an output when otherwise that would have to be, you know previously been done manually and 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 you might not have as much access to different data like you, you wouldn't be able to see what the climate is like in certain places what what works best in some places and what doesn't work in other places and this sort of gives you a better it's just the speed and the and the uh, I guess the amount of information you're working with will make it much easier for them
1: so why exactly is this kind of technology needed in food production today?
2: You know, there's UN sustainability goals and there's kind of like six of them that are like, Hey guys, these are the big problems that we should probably like work on as a society. Go work it out, (laughs) smart people. Um, one of them is food sustainability and there's massive concerns around kind of not just having enough food, but how to distribute that food and get it to the right people in the right places, um, with climate change and the rise of climate related weather disasters. Um, Old ways of making food are not necessarily working. There was a story that came out this week about Indian women in villages, basically, uh, kind of climate refugees having to migrate to cities to um, because like their former livelihoods aren't working. Um, I think that's going to happen on scale more and more. It's a different issue, um, but it's basically indicative of where we're headed in terms of if you have food insecurity, you know, people have to go and find other solutions. So if you can kind of have a bit of prevention um, before sadder circumstances like that, such as what these scientists are doing at UQ, you can maybe get ahead of the problem.
1: So this discovery, it could really help with some of the negative impacts of climate change, Josh.
0: Yeah, I think it's really more about mitigation than anything else and just basically, you know, as as the, the climate is changing, figuring out what w- what will actually work in in the future one of the things that's that maybe is concerning and I'm, I'm it's not clear to me whether that the AI was sort of seeing potential problems down the track or like what might happen
2: yeah it was it was looking for like how for disease prevention as well as kind of like what would be the traits that they would want to like breed for so kind of the two things
0: yeah so so one of the things that um has come up recently like with bananas we're seeing sort of a lot of bananas being wiped out in in parts of the world because they're being attacked by this this new form of fungus that they haven't been introduced to before and because uh you know, we've largely uh, homogenised bananas around this one particular breed, it makes it much harder to sort of have a bit of diversification. So I guess if if it's not sort of seeing that, if it is, then that, that might be good. But if like if it's not being sort of being able to predict these unforeseen circumstances and we all sort of put our be- eggs in one basket, it might be cause problems down the track.
1: Well, if there's one thing that AI is good at, it is actually predicting things <laughs> into the future based on <laughs> the data that it's been given. So hopefully this technology can help avoid that from happening as well. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston and I am joined by Josh Taylor, reporter with The Guardian Australia, and Natasha Gillizow, editor and product lead at Missing Perspectives. And one of the draw cards of autonomous vehicles is that you can do other stuff instead of driving. But what exactly should and shouldn't you be doing? We know a little bit more about this now thanks to research out of RMIT University. Tell me about the tests the research has carried out there, Tash.
2: Yeah, so the main test was kind of like driver response time to have that if you had to take over the vehicle. So if you're like chilling in the car, something goes wrong and you're like, I have to be the driver now, how quickly could people respond? So they had like three conditions, like very common things that people would be doing if they're a passenger. Um, one was like the work condition. One was the rest condition. One was the entertainment condition. So basically like responding to some business emails, scrolling social media or like closing their eyes for some shut eye. Oof. Um, and they found that the social media one was actually weirdly okay. Like the driver response time to be able to like stop that task and take over the vehicle and recognize problem Um kind of perform the best, but work and sleep um, not really on. And younger tr- younger drivers also fed worse off in terms of being able to respond quickly.
1: That's kind of interesting because you know, social media is one of those tasks that we're taught to multitask with. You, know, you scroll while you're watching television, you scroll while you're walking along. So we're used to being distracted from that. Whereas you know, things like doing work, for example, it requires a bit of a deeper thought. So is that maybe why it's had that sort of results, Josh, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think you've nailed it there. I think that you know business emails are something that require much more focus and, and it's something or processing and thinking through. If you're just passively scrolling through social media, not, you're not like posting anything, you're not uploading video or something like that, which I'm sure is probably going to be a factor of it in, at some point <laughs> in the future, but not quite yet. It doesn't require as much of a distraction. And I think a lot of us now are probably used to maybe not uh, smartly, but lo- lo- just naturally walking around with, with our phone in our hand and scrolling through social media. We're, we're probably less likely to be answering business emails, although I still do email some people while I'm walking as well. So, But um, I think that it's probably just a factor of what people are used to. And, and it's, I, I th- thought this was interesting. I think we're still a long way off from this being a thing, um, it, particularly if you just think that it's not actually legal in Australia for us to sort of have autonomous vehicles. And we have so many laws in Australia around using mobile phones sort while of driving, which is Completely right to have in place, but um, I think it's going to take a long time for people to uh, sort of get feel comfortable enough with with autonomous vehicles that they will feel like they can, sh- you know, shut their eyes and go to bed.
1: It does seem like it will be tricky to navigate a future where we're getting used to scrolling through our phones and that being okay in an autonomous vehicle, but not in our regular (sighs) vehicle. I'm kind of foreseeing that there will need to be a lot of regulation around this space. So research like this might show us what ends up being enshrined in law, right, Tash?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, driving is... um Quite a dangerous activity. And it's something that I guess when even like the first automobiles were introduced, right? Like it took a long time for society to work out how do we make this, how do we use this technology and the benefits of the technology, but make it as safe as possible. You know, seatbelts weren't introduced for like decades. Um, they were like, oh, this would be a good idea. So maybe this research, um, you know, if it's done well, it's part of that phase, like part of trying to make sure that once. The technology is deployed. It's as safe as possible, and valuing human life, which is like the most important thing at the end of the day, um, more so than this is a cool technology or anything else. Like that's the most sacrosanct thing. So yeah, good on them for doing doing the study.
0: I'd be interested to see. So I think that the only way that we can actually ever go about this is if, if we can't just have some autonomous vehicles. We have to have every, all autonomous vehicles. We have to, we can't be in a situation where we, you have the mixture of human and autonomous. Like there are. I do sort of You
2: think it has to be like one or the other.
0: I think so because I think you just have that element of, um, I guess, uh, unpredictability with human human interaction, even though you can have that with AI as well. But I think um, you see some of the plans for smart cities and things like that where they talk about how uh, if you get into an autonomous vehicle and it's communicating with all the other autonomous vehicles and the overall city is sort of scheduling how it travels around and getting people from from one place to another – And that takes a lot of the sort of the risk out of it, I guess. That would be a place where you could probably, you know, get in a car and go to sleep and wake up at work. But I think that there's so much more unpredictability if you're doing a mixture of autonomous and human driving.
2: I mean, I think if that's the case and it's been hard enough to phase out petrol vehicles for electric (laughs) vehicles, then it's honestly difficult to imagine a state that just has autonomous vehicles, right? Like then puts it very, very far in the future. I think Josh is probably right. It's just like what is the best or what would make sense, I highly doubt is what will happen.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, I think that the the idea of having their ability to drive taken away from them is going to be a bridge too far for a lot of people for a long time. So I think it's a long way off as well.
1: And I think there's going to need to be probably some big changes in the way autonomous vehicles are currently being made and how that software is being developed. Because, you know, even when you look at the commercial airline industry, the reason that it became so safe is because all of the different companies were sharing their learnings with each other Mm -hmm. in order to create one overarching set of regulations. Being, like,
2: highly collaborative, yeah.
1: Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't have that with autonomous vehicles yet, right?
0: Oh, I don't want to say his name but like we can we know the reason why uh there's probably less competition <laughs> within the within the the uh you know electric vehicle sector that is looking at autonomous vehicles um to be fair Tesla has like opened up a lot of its standards to other people and stuff like that as why well. I shouldn't I shouldn't just trash on Elon Musk because that's very easy to do uh yeah it's still very much a place where everyone's still trying to be the the number one sort of car in, in this space so there, there's not a lot of uh, I guess sharing there at the moment
1: Seriously though, would you feel comfortable doing different activities in an autonomous vehicle, Tash? I barely feel comfortable in a normal vehicle
2: doing different activities. So I, d- I don't know. I'd have to get in one, to be honest. Like it's like I'd have to, it's like anything. It's like imagining it versus like the actual experience of the tool. Um, And I think that often in technology, people are talking about things that they haven't actually like tested. So My answer's no, but yeah. I sound like I'm hedging massively, but like not really. (laughs) Yeah. What about yourself, Josh? Are there any activities
1: that you're like, yeah, I'll do this in an autonomous vehicle?
0: (laughs) I think it would be one of those things, similar to what Tash said, I think it's one of those things where I'd have to know all the the circumstances. I mean, like if you think about even getting on a plane, if you think about the the process involved of like throwing yourself up in the air for, uh, you know, however many hours when you're flying somewhere, it just seems very unnatural when you when you like disassociate from it. But it's so it's so just normal for us now that we don't even really think about well, We try not to think about it a lot of the time. And I think that at some point autonomous vehicles may end up being like that as well, where you're just like, okay, I'm just gonna hop in the car and, you know, do do my business while I'm while I'm waiting for this car to, to get me where I'm going. But it just feels so far away at the moment that it's hard to conceptualise. Download this show
1: is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And Netflix has surprised us with the news that it's killing off its DVD service. Not so surprising that it's ending, just surprising it still existed. Did you know that this was around, Josh?
0: I must admit I was not aware that they still did it, but it makes a fair bit of sense that there would still have it. I mean it was their core business for so so long before they started the streaming service. And the other thing is that in America, in parts of Australia, the broadband is not that great. Um, a lot of people can't get, you know, good streaming quality internet access. And for those people, the DVD service does make sense. Like the DVD mailing service still does make sense for them. But I, I'm I'm not surprised to read news that they're finally retiring. It, it does feel a bit like Blockbuster sort of going out of business. <laughs>
1: I am revealing my age here, but I do remember using this service back in the day, getting my red envelope in the late 90s and and early noughties. But Tash, why are they killing it off? It it feels so nostalgic almost. Do you think they might want to keep it around?
2: It does feel nostalgic. It's always like fun to reflect on those different phases, right? Um, And honestly, just like what an incredible company. When it was like 25 years, what Netflix has become in that time, like that's breakneck speed to be what it is today for, for better or worse in terms of in the entertainment industry. Yeah, I mean, they're probably killing it off because not a lot of people are ordering DVDs anymore <laughs> or they, you know, they don't think it's worth investing in those customers that Josh mentioned would still still find value in it. I would say it would be the reason it would just be a business one.
0: Yeah, I mean, they they said that the DVD portion of their business counts for less than half a percent of revenue and uh, basically the cost of printing right, the DVDs and shipping them out, like the mail system, is just way too expensive compared to streaming. Disney has also come out and said that it will discontinue
1: DVD releases as well. So is it safe to say that this is it? This is the official end of the DVD era?
0: Oh, I reckon, well, yes and no. Uh, so I think there are a lot of entertainment businesses that are now trying to get out of it. But I think that that's probably a mistake because as, you, as we've sort of seen in the past couple of months, uh, there's a lot of streamers who will cancel a show and then remove it from their, from their service. And you have no way of like keeping track of that show. If, if you wanted to watch it again, there's no way you can watch it anymore. If you have a physical disc of something, then you can actually just... Go and watch it whenever you want, as long as you've got a DVD player. And I think this is one of the things that we're going to have to grapple with in the next couple of years, that uh, we can't trust a lot of these streamers to keep our favourite shows on there. So, you know, as we've sort of seen some of the some of the physical media come back with in music, I think that, you know, there, there's going to be a life for DVDs, even though it's it's annoying. I've had to move house so many times in my DVD collection. <laughs> I've, I've not touched them, but I move them between house every time. Uh Ultimately, I know that if if you know if they pull that whatever show that I want to watch off a streamer, I can just turn to the DVD.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing CDs that I had back in the 90s now being sold as vintage for three times what <laughs> I paid for them. So it does almost seem inevitable that DVDs will one day be cool and vintage again. Should we just be holding on to them, not getting rid
2: of them, Tash? I mean... I it's it's a bit hoardery to be like, just hold on to your DVDs because they'll be cool and vintage. Like maybe that Pokemon card will be worth something. I, I yeah, don't think maybe that...
1: that Pokemon card will be worth maybe something.
2: Maybe it will be, exactly. Maybe the market <laughs> will be popping off and then you'll be ready. I think that like the more interesting question for me is like, what can we learn from DVDs? Because anytime anything gets phased out, there's like a whole bunch of practices and approaches that are always also phased out. Right. And I think like the physical cover and the importance of that cover, um, you know, choice and, you know, the the wrestling with your partner or a sibling, like which DVD to watch, um, just the slower pace of it, like uh, not within like a faux romanticization of that process, but every time those things are killed off, like little practices around that tool also die with it that have value. So...
0: Oh. Yeah. You, you know that, uh, that on YouTube there's a whole genre of, of things where you can go watch DVD menu screens, which is something wow. that we don't have anymore. Wow, <laughs> that is
1: incredible because sometimes the menu screens had the best music. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep,
2: and like these director uncut, like, sh- ver- like director's cut versions, and like it was the fun. commentaries. As yeah, well. exactly. Yeah. Like
0: but, yeah commentaries. I uh, highly the recommend
1: one. the uh, commentary for Armageddon. By the way, <laughs> So good. Ben Affleck is not having any of it.
0: I, I recommend uh, the, the DVD menu screen for Shrek as well, or Shrek 2, I think it is.
2: Okay, <laughs> that is a hot tip. <laughs> That's like, <laughs> wow. <laughs>
1: so many people going to be Googling that now.
2: <laughs> yeah, like things like that. It's, um, there's little moments like that that I think like deserve to be in the collective cultural memory.
1: Absolutely. Is this really an indication of where Netflix is going to continue to go in the future as well? do you think, Tash?
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't think Netflix or Reed Hastings from, you know, afar or reading reading material about Netflix operates in a like, let's preserve cultural memory and do the nostalgic (laughs) cute thing. I think it operates in a, let's like ruthlessly pursue what's working and apply, you know, use data to understand art commercially. You know, there's like, it would be remiss of us not to mention the strikes right now, to be honest, because it's like that, logic as a business logic doesn't necessarily square with the fair payment of people who produce and the creative labour. Um, I, I think that's it. I think they're going in a different direction. Yeah.
1: I think it does come in at an interesting time. And I think it also raises the question, will this just further encourage piracy, Josh?
0: I think there's definitely going to be a return to, to torrenting and all those other forms of piracy that we've seen before. You know, We've seen in Australia, at least, the government, uh, the, the Governments continue to sort of block a lot of websites that are associated with piracy, but it's basically whack-a-mole all the time. And so, where, where one gets knocked down, a lot more pop up. I think you've you've got a we've got an interesting point in the market where we're essentially oversaturated. There's far too many streaming services that you subscribe to, and people don't want to sign up for them all. So they don't want to pay for them all. Uh, you've got a point where you know the strikes are going on, where uh, people who are producing this content feel like they're not getting a fair share, and you've got you've got a time where all these companies that were able to come into the market and build up a lot of uh, subscriber base, off- offering extremely low prices are now having to try and make money because money is much harder to get from from venture capitals and things like that and that means we're seeing price increases we're seeing them close down certain businesses cancel certain shows and things like that so I think this sort of we we're, we're now in the stage of, sort of reckoning with the the 2010s or you can eat for you know nine dollars a month era where everything felt like it was cheap and and easy to consume and, and I think that we're just sort of in a rebalance in there and it, it's, it's a long way before we come out on the other side of that I think
1: look I think there's only one place that this can go and I'm already seeing it happening. People are going to start collecting VHS tapes. This is people the future. already do. People I know. Do. Isn't it amazing?
0: <laughs> it's it's nostalgic for an era that we don't need to return to. It's it's a it's a flawed <laughs> medium.
1: <laughs> oh wow, Josh got some uh, strong thoughts on VHS there.
0: <laughs> just so many tapes wear out. That's that was my memory as a child. Just tapes wearing out all the time.
1: That was really sad. Or having you know your favourite show taped over by a sibling or parent who wanted to watch a program.
0: Well, you see, like Taylor Swift, when she's releasing all of her previous albums, she's releasing like a CD version, a, a vinyl version, a, a cassette tape version. So she's, already. there's already nostalgia purchases that you can do for this sort of stuff now.
1: She's already onto it. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for on today's show. A big thank you to Josh Taylor, reporter with Guardian Australia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And also Natasha our Editor and Product Lead at Missing Perspectives. Great to have you.
2: Thanks, Ray. And thanks, Josh. Lovely to chat.
1: <laughs> now, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform that you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.